Hello, and welcome to the first lockdown episode of Pre-Published. I'm Sophia. This episode is called Where Do You Belong? Catherine Johnson is a multi-award winning writer of 20 novels. She's best known for her history writing for young adults, but has also written contemporary novels and screenplays and taught creative writing in schools, universities, art galleries and prisons. She has great personal style and we could have spent the time talking fashion, art and growing up in London, but we were mostly disciplined and talked books. Her work is brave and feminist and it addresses the history of slavery, but also throws much needed light on black people in history who were adventurers, medics and aristocrats. I always feel energised by Catherine's company, even when we're talking over clean feed between Hastings and Wandsworth. I'm sure you'll hear what I mean as soon as I ask my first question. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. We recorded this episode in April 2020. Links to the resources we mentioned are listed in the show notes, so do look them up if you want to find out more. Catherine, welcome to my first online, totally virtual podcast. Hello, lovely to be not quite here. <laughs> You're in Hastings, aren't you? I am, I am. And Wonderful. It's well, very nice. I can't quite see the sea from this window, but if I was in my bedroom, I could. So there we go. Oh, well, I'd like to imagine it. Mm-hmm. Um, we've already, before we started, discussed a little bit about what we're going to talk about. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that came up um, was that you were a student at Central St. Martin's back in the days mm-hmm. when it was just St. Martin's. It was just I, I St. Guess. Martin's, yes. Good yes, and it was in the um, the old, uh, what's well, foils now, We were that, that was the main building, but we were actually in Longacre in what is now Arquette with the graphics, the film department, I was in the film department in the basement, we used to go to the big building for some lectures and we did do this big, you know, we wanted studio space, but it was... I mean, I was a girl from the suburbs, and there was—it was a tiny course. It was the time of my utter life. There were only so two... you were an art student in London. Yeah. was this the eighties? Yeah. yeah, very oh, early eighties. Just, just the coolest of the cool. Ah, oh, and and you had to pretend to be cool because honestly, you'd walk around and you you'd be walking up the stairs behind people wearing totally see-through pants and you'd have to be like I you know yes this is just what people do I mean obviously I did wear some absolutely ridiculous clothes that I made myself and uh, mostly out of pillowcases or second I had a beautiful white silk flapper dress beaded that I wore and just it just tore because I was so careless with it but I used to wear terrible things and I'd be on the tube and you know you'd wear these clothes because you wanted there was no internet so you signaled to people with your clothes you know look uh, at me you you were just Noni who's the um the narrator of Threads my, <laughs> my first novel who's who wants to go to St Martin's and, and oh. study fashion but she doesn't think she's good enough yeah. um and and she ends up uh, mentoring somebody who frankly is good enough and is a, uh-huh. is a fantastic uh-huh. designer but Noni signals who she is through how yeah. she dresses and she wears astroturf and um, bowler hats and wellies and anything she can get her hands on really pillowcases um, pillowcase skirts mm-hmm. and visible you know so short but suspenders and I expected if anyone looked at me I would give them death glare absolutely <laughs> and I think now you idiot you can't see my face go oh my god look at me don't look at me yeah you oh, can look wonderful. at me don't you if you look at me up. <laughs> and double-ended knitting needles because I had a knitting I had a fair isle stall in Portobello where mm. I sold hats and things and so I always had four-ended, you know, double-pointed knitting needles, which were like weapons as well, yeah. if any, if I got followed or if I got, you know, 
Noni would have just idolised you. How fantastic. (laughs) So we're going to leap from there, Uh um, St Martin's in the 80s, to the Uh Royal Society of Literature, of which you are now a fellow, along with Mary Beard. How did that happen, Catherine Johnson? I do not... Well, I know I've been around as a writer for a very long time, like 26 years now, Mm -hmm. and I've worked... Apart from the book, you know, I've written a lot of books. I am not a name. I am a mid-list writer who is like a safe pair of hands. And I feel really lucky that I've been able to keep going because I think that's part of it. Oh, Uh, I agree. It's, uh, uh, you know, in the past, when I started, I had... I used to work in literature development. I used to work in a bookshop, first of all. Once I stopped working in film, which I was no good at, staying mm-hmm. up late and into fact, you know. And, and actually, I, I, my first writing job was a script. That's how I got into writing. I wrote a script. I got paid to develop a treatment because I was quite a good blagger because I'd been a blagger at school. And um, But I couldn't write it because it was loosely based on my parents. And it was sort of, I had to write romance. And I just like, oh, no, no. But then I thought, well, maybe I could write something else. And this is how I got into writing, because I wrote an outline for a TV show, which was just six paragraphs. I never wrote a lot at school. I never, I was never, my exam results, I've never. And I sent this off. And absolute sheer flute. This doesn't happen now. Somebody in the office of that TV company, it it was a pony story set in North Wales, where half my family come from. Yeah. Uh, and somebody said, this would make an excellent YA book. I said, oh, your book? Are you mad? Have you seen how many words in a book? No, no, no. I know someone. They're a small publisher. They're looking for this kind of thing. No, 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 no. And somebody in that office sent it to the publisher. The editor, a lovely woman, Myron Priest-Jones, said, oh, you know right and I said again to her are you mad she goes no 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 look you know I always wrote letters this is the olden days and Mm. uh, you know my letters were quite funny I was quite good at writing letters I mean I didn't know at the time but obviously I look back now you know and um she sent me on a course with Jan Mark and Catherine Fisher at Tinewith and then on another one with Bernice Rubens at Hay, where I had to go every day. My children were little, and I used to go every morning and cry, I don't know what I'm doing. And Bernice said, of course you don't do it. None of us know what we're writing until we write it. You know? Oh, <laughs> wonderful. Good for her. Yeah, so that's how I started. And then I did one. It's like going down a very steep slide. You do it and you think, my God, maybe I can do this. And that's how I started writing. And I went back to film by fluke again, or, uh, you know, it's, you have to keep going and you have to, it's like you're wandering through the forest, throwing breadcrumbs out, taking mm. uh, thorns out of lion's paws so that in the future, the lion comes back and says, oh, you know, you're all right. And I've been so lucky true. enough with Working Families Tax Credit, I was in a partnership. I had very cheap housing from being an art student at St. Martin's. Oh, my God, that's another story. <laughs> um, and since uh, my life's changed, I am now self-supporting. I'm, and that's because I have a mixture of work. I have a portfolio career. So I do some TV. I do 
some books, I do some teaching, I do, I did a video game last year, which comes out, which has got a trailer, uh, and actually they've made me the, uh, uh, one of the my very minor characters, and that was such fun writing on that game, I would say. That sounds thrilling. Um, so I, you know, will write full food, and I'm very lucky. <laughs> and that's why they made you a fellow of the Royal Society. <laughs> I think, yeah, sorry, yeah, I think because I've been around every block and people know me I think you know it was I I was very lucky I mean you know the film that I first worked on and that has got me a lot of the other TV work uh, I've been very lucky so and I've had the support of a lovely writing community uh, especially in the children's world but especially but also outside I think you you say luck but but in all of that it just sounds like tremendous hard work and doing well, it both, over and over again it? yeah it's like yeah, it, I, I mean I do thing. think you you make your luck you make your luck by being nice to by people being there, and by being reliable being, yeah, yeah. and being there yeah yeah and also keeping going you know yeah. I mean nobody should be a writer because what you do is the same thing over and over again and hope for a different result. it's like you know with books especially I, I get very anyway very difficult writing books the triumph of hope over experience I think being a writer yes definitely um but here we are we're both still still at it even in the current circumstances Uh so yes um you have written too many books for us to talk about today Mm -hmm. I'm afraid but we're going to talk about some of them Mm -hmm. um I think the first one I came across of yours because it was similar to the sort of thing that I was doing at the time was Mm -hmm. face value yes you see there's the fashion one yes (laughs) I would say that's kind of not really typical of the sort of thing that you do, a well, contemporary fashion London-based story. I, I used to. I think I got sidetracked into historical. Uh, hmm. um, I, I used to write contemporary YA a lot more. And that was, uh, that was, uh, yeah, I suppose, not the very last one. I did a sort of, uh, not a quite a whodunit. Uh, and... The reason why I wrote Face Value, actually, that came out of... I was writing residence in Holloway Prison when Holloway Women's Prison was still in Holloway. Um, right. They'd been diver- you know, dispersed, and I think they've knocked the building down now. And I learnt so much from the people in there. And obviously, one cannot... I feel very, very strongly that you should not and cannot tell people's other people's stories you know it's very important to me to say okay I'm writing this having said that I have been doing fictionalized biographies recently but yeah you know they tend to be historical figures but not exploiting people who have interesting lives and I heard so many interesting stories in there and it was so hard not to think about them and I also had a job Parallel to that, I was working at an, uh, a centre for ex- sexually exploited under-16s for Barnardo's, mm. doing research for a radio play, in fact. But I was doing workshops with the girls. And it's that thing about... And actually, a lot of my books are like, you know, well, it's about love, really. What is love? Well, how do you know what love is? Because I think yeah, all yeah, I think I think all love. of mine are ultimately about. about yeah, love. I think all stories are about love, really, aren't they? Yeah. I don't know. So yes. Yeah, so 
that one, fashion. I do love fashion. clothes. I'm really sorry. But the next yeah. time I came across you was, um, well, apart from sort of socially and things, was the curious uh, tale of the Lady Caribou, because by uh -huh. then I was writing a little bit of history as well. Uh -huh. And I remember we did a really fantastic mm -hmm. evening in a wonderful Waterstones in Guildford. Guildford, Guildford. They really looked after us. I know. And we talked about historical literature to yeah. a very engaged audience. And yeah. it was really wonderful. And yeah. we were then told by the rest of the world that, that teens don't read history, which was very yeah. sad because we'd met several who did. Yeah. Um, but I noticed that um, you, you're prepared to go much darker than me. I always think I write kind of holiday beach reads. I, I write, mm -hmm. I try and write books for people to to read between exams and stressful times. Uh -huh. um, whereas I feel that your books um, tend to be, you're, you're willing to go darker and and really, really engage people's, oh, um, oh I don't know, their, their, you know their, their deepest thoughts. Is that what well, you're trying to do? No, I, I think I'm trying to tell a story. I don't know. I, the conscious, the dark thing, I think a lot of the subjects that I'm dealing with do have dark elements and I think to turn away from those things strikes me as being a bit dishonest so yeah I probably a lot of people would say oh well you're not taking you're not doing that you're not being dark enough but um I think and, and with Caribou which is is based on a true story so it was the first book I ever wrote that had a, was based on a real person but in order to squidge it into a story into a particular story for a particular audience I didn't use the, the real life structure so it does open quite shockingly in order that the reader gets her motivation and but so this I, is a girl who is masquerading as yes somebody yes. else yes and um, she and when the book opens she has just been through a very 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 shocking experience yes and that that was like a distillation of the real Car lady caribou princess caribou was a real girl called mary wilcox or mary baker and her previous maybe five six seven years were pretty up and down so I sort of squished that into one dramatic event you know there was a death of a baby there was uh, a used and abused there was probably medical experiments in the St Martin's in the field workhouse uh, so I squidged everything into one so it does open I hope it's not exploitative that beginning is not you know it is it is a rape. I mean, so there's no way getting around it. But yeah. it's not, I hope, exploitative. Well, I mean, I always what, what think can it, you do? It, it depends how the reader is supposed to be made a voyeur, I suppose. And, and I always mm. felt in that that it was what I got from it was trauma, frankly. Um, uh -huh. not, not, not any, as I felt I was supposed to. Um, yeah. not, not anything that was, um, you know, glamorously voyeuristic. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, good, good, good. Well, I mean, that um, was... So that's yes. why I did it. And trying to, you know, why would a girl pretend so completely? You know, it was, it was because I, if I'd have started, you know, it's like when you've got a re reality, and I, I do write other fictionalised history you've got to put a circle around that story mm, yes. when you're writing a story it's it's a bit like 
you know, if you're sewing and you've got a big bolt of cloth, you've got to know where to cut that thing off, out, yeah. haven't you? And exactly. In order for it to make something that isn't just a toga, because you could just have a toga, that would work. <laughs> but, you know, but it needs a beginning and a middle things. and an end. Yeah. yeah, they're artificial constructs. And um, you've got to know how to... I'm a big, big story fascist now. Like I said, when I was at St. Martin's, it was all art, film, you know, and uh, non-narrative and like, oh, you know, there's a joke in this. It's a pan across a frying pan. But I am not like that (laughs) anymore. I did do, um, even before I did the BBC Writers Academy, which is led by John York, and you're in a little room, there's eight of you, and all your computers are wired up to a whiteboard and you're all typing away and then suddenly your thing will come up and it'll be like, oh, and you're like, oh, you know. So I am pretty... And this is what we want. This is why it's so horrible at the moment, because there's no bloody story structure. We need in structure reality, in our lives. Yes, we need we structure want, in our exactly, reading lives. Exactly. Yes. I mean, I must say, I think that's one of the reasons I, I can continue to write at the mm. moment. This that we're, we're recording mm. in, in early April 2020. So anyone listening mm-hmm. to this will, will know what's going on, wherever they happen to be. Uh-huh. Um and and I know that many, many, many of my writer friends can't mm-hmm. write. And I, I absolutely get that. I completely do. But what I'm finding is I, I need some structure somewhere in my life. And I'm getting it from the story that I'm telling. Yeah. I couldn't start to write a story right now. I couldn't well, begin yeah. to. But I happen to be very go. lucky that I was in one. It was already yeah. very largely plotted. So I can yeah. disappear into my plot every day. And that's, that's... the thing. Plot, there's, I, I've done the beginning. I'm in the middle. I know what the end is. And, yeah. and that structure in, in my, my sort of inner life right now is yeah. is really helping me through. And I'm reading The Mirror and the Light by Hilary Mantel. Oh. So I've got, I've got Henry VIII. I've got Ter- Thomas Cromwell's life. I mean, I know it's going to be a short from here on in. It. I can't I mean I love I love those books what I can't bear is that I know that the I know the ending and I can't it's so soon so soon but you know (gasps) structure imposed um yeah I I, I talked to Sarah Collins not that long ago for this this podcast and Mm -hmm. she quoted Hilary Mantel saying that um writing a novel is a triumph of deletion and mm-hmm. a lot of people have liked that. I liked it when I heard it. And I, I think about that every day because I'm, I'm doing a lot of research for what I'm writing at the moment. Uh-huh. So, yeah, so there's the structure of the plot. And there's also the, mm-hmm. the discipline of knowing that I know something really interesting, like the fact yeah. that James II planted mulberry trees in St. James's Park outside uh-huh. Buckingham Palace so that he could grow silk because he needed to make some money. But they were the wrong type uh-huh. of mulberry trees or the wrong uh-huh. type of silkworms. So. Uh-huh. He couldn't, um, it never worked out. Um, and I find all of this really interesting, but it's not in the book because there's not space for it. So. You're telling me, you look at my, my. I have, you know, obviously like all of us, we've probably got different bookshelves in different parts of the house. So mm. here, the one nearest to me, because I've just finished, it's just gone, I mean, just waiting. It was commissioned. I've done a adaptation of Miranda Kaufman's Black Tudors for Silverprint Pictures who do Vera and Shetland and stuff. Oh, um, lovely. Wow. So I've been doing that. So I, I'm not, I, I, I finished reading all the, Tudor, I'm, I'm looking now, all this Tudor stuff. Because I didn't know, I knew loads about the 18th century, but I mm. had to read so much. And so much interesting about, I mean, you know, uh, so Simon Foreman. Who knew? Uh, So the thing about you, Catherine, I think Mm. it's very interesting what you're doing at the moment is you are a lot of the time putting 
real black historical figures back uh-huh, into the history uh-huh. where they belong, uh-huh. aren't you? And uh-huh. I just, I love this. I think it is so important. Um, uh-huh. and, and funnily enough, I'm, at the moment, I'm, I'm putting a, a black contemporary figure into where I feel she belongs as well. Yeah. Um, but um, <gasps> I found something fantastic. Sorry, I've just got yeah. to tell you this. Recently, <laughs> somebody sent me on Twitter after the, because I, I, I've got a book about Dumas coming out. Uh, yes, I want to talk yeah. to you about him. <gasps> It's called To Liberty. I don't know whether it'll come out this summer. It's supposed to, I don't know. Anyway, but after the Haitian Revolution, they uh, set up a royal family and the crown prince and the two princesses, and I've forgotten the name, but one of them is called Amethystine, were exiled in 1814. There's a beautiful painting of these Jane Austen-esque black royalty, the the crown prince and these two women. And where did they rock up? Hastings. <laughs> Where you are. Yes. Sorry. So I get very excited. It's that thing. It's just you said about finding this stuff out. And it's not, uh, is it going to come up somewhere? Is it not? I don't know. But the reason about putting, sorry, to go back to be putting black characters, British characters into history, right? The reason why I, I, I started doing this. Partly, it's partly to do with the clothes as well. I love a frock. Yes, uh, I when noticed I was from your kid. website. You have a lovely yeah. image, don't you, of your, your grandmother on your website. Yeah, and, and pointing yeah. out that not all historical black people were dressed in rags. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and all, when I was a kid, the stuff, and I, I did, didn't read as widely as some readers, okay? I was a child of television. I mm. loved the family Sunday afternoon historical adaptation. Uh, they had Leon Garfields and stuff like that. And mm. um, I loved the dressing up. And I, you know, in those days, you'd go and play telly in school. We'd play telly, primary yeah. school. And very often, I know, you know, you sublimate a lot of this, but there was not a place for me. Sorry, I'm away from the microphone. Because I, I was tell. looking at the books. <laughs> Sorry. Um, there was not a place for me to play so yes, you're talking about the fact that you didn't see yourself in them. And now, is this because your your mum was from Wales, wasn't she? And your dad yeah. was from Jamaica. Yes, yes. And although nowadays in London or in actually any other part, not just in Britain, it's acceptable. You know, why not quite? It's the people are used to seeing mixed race people. If yes. not in their street, then on the telly. It's much... What's really hard for anyone to imagine is that... In North London, in the 60s and the 70s, it was very unusual. Right. It really, really was, you know, even my school, which had, you know, we had Greek Cypriots, we had, I think there was one other black kid in my class, in my primary school, uh, you know, more later. But when I was young, it was not... And most of the time, I, my parents, I had a charmed life. I had an absolute charmed life. Um, but it was those little things that means that, you know, where do you belong, okay? Where do you belong? Do you belong? I don't belong in either of them. Like most Londoners, who's, most Londoners' parents do not come from London. Yes. Um, it's a really common thing. And in London, anybody can be a Londoner. That's the joy of it. But what I wanted to make, clear from my stories is that people like me 
do belong here and what's more we've been belonging here forever for centuries these, yes. yes millennia even you think of uh, yeah. Septimus Severus or even actually round the corner from me in Eastbourne there was a, a woman on beachy head from sub-Saharan Africa pre-Roman you know it's well we, so, come, we come back to, to, to lovely Mary Beard who you became a Fellow of the Royal Society with, because oh, no. um, who's got into such controversy on on Twitter with, with people complaining that she'd said that there were black people in mm. Rome in England. Mm-hmm. Her pointing mm-hmm. out that just there uh, frankly were, yeah. and people being really upset about it. Yes. yes, well, I mean, what can you say? I mean, this is why, and this is a sad thing because it seems like you're banging on about something, but it's a bit like. We, you know, 40 years ago, oh, yes, you know, women exist over here and don't leach into other parts of, I'm doing air quotes, life, mm. you know, or professional life. You just have well, to keep... I, yeah. ba- I had that in the last book that I was writing because I was writing um, my my book on on women artists for for Tate, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I had exactly this of you know well obviously women aren't famous artists obviously and mm-hmm. it must be because they weren't allowed to paint and of yeah. course they largely weren't allowed to paint but do you know what thousands and thousands of them still did and many of them yeah. were really good and I just found wherever I looked whatever continent I looked at whatever decade or century I looked at there were uh-huh. great women painters in it or artists mm-hmm. of some sort they just didn't get written about yeah um and and it, it became strange mm. how they had been kind of erased from history but but yeah. they were just always there but that's because we know who's writing the history of painters and it's like what is considered important and it's very much people like us whoever the us is it's like who's the us who's the we whose point of view are we getting this from whether it's women whether it's people of color whether it's the non-majority you know Uh, and so you end up feeling sort of sounding sad or angry or like you're just banging on about things but actually see again what you said earlier you find something out and you're like oh my god you know and you run with that finding out stuff so you know? oh, let's talk about race to the frozen north i know we're dotting oh, around but okay, so that's fine tell Dot me about around. that because i don't know this story all right. i really know is okay. what i've seen from, from the cover of the book and the, and the blurb okay. of the book so who's well, that about it's about Matthew Henson, who's an American who, in 1909, w- with uh, two Inuit companions, Utah and Siglu, were the first at the North Pole. He was on an expedition with Commander Peary, and Peary rocked up not much longer after him. But nobody believed that a black man could have been the first person at the North Pole. So for a long time, they didn't believe that the expedition had actually gone there. Uh, and then when they did award Peary an Explorer's Medal, uh, Henson didn't get one until the 1950s. Uh, I mean, he's celebrating America now, but his story, you know, he was the son of sharecroppers. He ran away from home at 11. He was illiterate until he went away to sea. Uh, he learnt a million languages on board ship. He learnt carpentry. He learnt reading and writing. He learnt basic uh, medical thing. He he was he was like one of those sponges that soaked yeah. up all these experiences and he sounds a bit like Thomas Cromwell actually. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you know, it's like again, it's a bit of 
a bit of luck, but actually he walked out of his home to Baltimore to get a job mm. in a calf to find a job. He didn't know he was going to, you know. And then he heard these stories of sea travel in Baltimore, in, in Washington, sorry, and then walked to Baltimore and then got a place on a ship. And But also, you know, America was very segregated, so there was lots of things he wasn't allowed to do. And when he returned from all this exploring, he was, the jobs he found, he was allowed to get in New York, you know, a uh, messenger boy, yeah. parking cars. I mean, it's yeah. absolutely, it's such a, it's a brilliant story. It's a brilliant, brilliant story. And it is known well in, in the States. And what mm. happened was with Barrington Stoke, I, I, I don't, there's this other thing. That, so every so often, because I've been around for so long, <laughs> I don't know how many diversity initiatives I've seen spring up and go away again That's but anyway interesting I don't uh, know that. okay yeah well come on I mean do you I don't know if you remember actually one of my Saturday jobs I used to work in Woolworths but I then worked in a couple of radical bookshops in the 70s and um you know everything gets done everything has to be done 10 times so this thing with diversity so one of these I think it was about the second one there was a big arts council initiative called Decibel which actually mm-hmm. resulted in Patrice Lawrence getting her first agent, but she didn't get published for another about 10 years afterwards. But anyway, so I was at this big conference and the people from Barrington Stoke sought me out and said, would you write about, you know, is there somebody you'd like to write about uh, and and explore something? Oh God, and I knew a lot about Antarctic and Arctic exploration because of a Blue Peter annual my brother had when I was a kid (laughs) and being fascinated by frostbite. I mean, no, you know, all these different, Oh, anyway, wow. so this is the sort of thing I was very interested in as a young person. Anyway, forget all that. So Matthew Anson, I said, yes, I'm right about Matthew Anson. So I wrote a book over 10 years ago called Arctic Hero, which wasn't, it was a straight uh, information, non-fiction book, you know? Sure, yeah. And it, it did quite well. It was on lots of lists. I think it was one of those book trust free books. Uh, years ago and then two or three years ago they said we want a first person in his voice book so I did I I wrote it I thought it was going to be harder than because you know it's ventriloquizing a real person yeah do you know what I mean oh I do Uh, because I'm doing exactly that myself there you go and you do it feels a bit yeah but it's hard to get you have to keep giving yourself permission don't you it took me two years to get the courage up. There you go. There you go. And I was actually, when I wrote that, I was escaping real awful, not awful, but things in my real life that I didn't want to look at. Mm. I, I wrote two books that year because I wanted to not be in the real world. <laughs> so, yeah. So I, I really do like Arctic and Antarctic exploration. Um <laughs> so we've got him and yeah. um, we also have Duma <gasps> oh I love him so much there's so many lovely oh, so he's the father of the writer Alexander Duma who based okay. all his stories on his dad basically you know you want a story he wrote a story about a man who was wrongly imprisoned in a dungeon for no reason 
Yeah. That's what happened to his father. Uh, a man who fought four duels in a day, a man who was supposedly so strong he could ride under a beam in an indoor riding school and pick up the horse with his thighs. These are all <laughs> stories about... I know. I know. True. Hmm. Um, but you read his actual real life and he is such an inspirational leader. And he was so widely admired, even by the British military uh people who write military theory of the time. Military historians, how about that? Yes, yes. (laughs) Um, That they uh, talked about his incredible victories in the Alps um, when he led the army of the Alps against, it wasn't the Italians because they were a mixture of different, but he led his men from the front and he never did anything that he, he never told his men to do anything he wouldn't do. This is a man who was abandoned by his father, whose brothers and sisters were sold. You know, it's it's so. What was his backstory then? Where where did he start out? Ah, he was born in Saint-Domingue, which is Haiti, uh, and his father was a marquis, the Marquis de la Palliere, David de la Palliere, Alexander David, and they had a pile in Normandy. But, and they had a, a, a title and not mm-hmm. much money. And he was in the cavalry. And he thought, I'm going to make a lot of money. I'll go to Haiti, sugar plantation. Yeah, no, slaves. Yeah, I'll make loads of money. So off yeah. he goes. He's a rubbish businessman. He, I'm doing air quotes here, marries. But yeah. I think they did, you know, they were together till the woman died. And they had right. five children. And in the meantime, he had a coffee farm, the dad. And he... Thomas, uh, Thomas Alexander Thomas the first. I call him Thomas, even though his name is also Alexander, just to differentiate Thomas Alexander. Yes. And the dad, who was the marquis, taught him uh, sword fighting. He was very good on, you know, horsemanship a bit. And then when the when his wife Marie Dumas died, Marie Cesset Dumas died. Mm. Uh, the dad couldn't cope. He thought, you know what? I'll go back to Normandy. I'll get my title back. And he sells the youngest four children. Oh, that's and charming. Thomas, yeah. Thomas Alexander, who is like 11, 12, he, 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 it might be that he didn't have the money to get back. I mean, you know, that's still not a reason to sell your kids. He no. pawns Thomas. You know, you can go and work for this guy. For, you know, I prom- I'll be back sometime. Four years later, he sends for him. And he's mortgaged the castle. He's got a townhouse in Saint-Germain-de-Laye. And he sends for his son, who is now a count. He sends him to the best military school in France, which the tutor is um, is also a man of colour. And I've forgotten his name because it's not in front of me. Oh, Chevalier de Saint-Georges, who right. was a favourite of Marie Antoinette and a brilliant swordsman. And Thomas Alexander is the best horseman the best swordsman the greatest shot a brilliant athlete he's six foot he looks fantastic on a horse and he's and so got... he, he, and he is the child of the the marquis and yeah. the, the the slave that he yeah. air quotes married yeah. and, and it's so fascinating when he, he he leaves he leaves he goes and lives in paris on his own when he's about 18 20 and there's all these ideas about revolution and eventually he gives up his title and joins the army as a regular soldier because you know he's not going to rely on his uh, name 
And then the revolution comes and he joins the American regiment, which is the black, a black regiment, yes. but American, led by the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, who eventually takes over and then eventually becomes leader of one of the three great armies of France, the Army of the Alps. And then Napoleon doesn't much like him, obviously, when Napoleon comes to power and, you know, the invasion of Egypt. And he says, come and join the cavalry, you know, lead the cavalry. And Thomas thinks, oh, I can pick up some nice horses and do a bit of, you know, OK. And he does all sorts of really brave things. And he gets painted out of the portraits. He saves all these people in a mosque. And he gets, like I said, Napoleon paints him out of the portrait. And it's on the way back from Egypt when he puts in a Sicily, the king of Sicily puts him in a dungeon. And uh, he does get back to his family. Sorry. And this, is, this is your book. And I'm just thinking, <laughs> this is what I get to read in the summer. I am so excited about this. It's just I sounds I amazing. To, yeah, I mean, it's it's unbelievable. It's uh, his story. You couldn't make it up. <laughs> you don't have to. It was that. That's wonderful. Okay. So um, we've talked far too long about Sorry. your books because they are so interesting. They just are. And we haven't talked about sawbones, which just oh. completely fascinates me. Well, we can't. We haven't got time. But um, there are so many. <laughs> I, I recommend, dear, dear listener, I recommend Catherine's writing. It's, it's vivid. As you can tell, it's vivid and it's fascinating and, and you'll learn a lot and you'll have a good time while you're doing it. Um, but that is partly because you also understand the craft so well and you're, you are a creative writing teacher aren't mm -hmm. you as well mm -hmm. and you I'm very jealous so you've taught at uh, some of the Arvon courses which is something that I would love to do no it's lovely I love teaching Arvon um, and it's produced a lot of great writers hasn't it I mean it, it's you go away for a week to a lovely setting and yeah. lots of workshopping and sharing and they have grants but it's also it's that thing which I think is really important it's an opportunity to take yourself seriously as a writer. Mm -hmm. I think for a lot of us, when we start, it's a bit like a shameful secret. And you're not going to say, uh, you know, when somebody says to you, what are you doing? Especially if you've got little kids. You've got little kids. You're probably working part time and you've yeah. got little kids. And someone says, oh, what are you doing? You're not going to say, I'm working on my novel. Because it just sounds so <laughs> wanky. Yeah. But it's a space where you can actually talk about writing and it's not dirty. It's lovely. I know that feeling. So, I mean, I have my 10 years of, of thinking of myself as a writer because I was writing in, in all my spare moments. But I, I couldn't say that I was because, you know, mm. nothing had been published or even come close to it. And the day that I, I'd had my first contract signed and my passport was due for renewal and I could write <gasps> author on it. Oh, my yeah. God. That was one of my favorite yes. days. Yeah. <laughs> It is, um, it? So I think that's important. I think I think we self-sabotage ourselves a lot. I think, I mean, obviously some people don't, but they probably shouldn't be writing. Um, but, <laughs> you know, we do self-sabotage. I mean, I'm doing it myself at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's so easy to not do it. Because all it is really, it's just pretending. It's pretending. It's like... With your furry animals, you know, that I used to endlessly make clothes for and make them get married and make them do things, or Lego, it's pretending all we do. It's not bloody rocket science. It's just, it's daydreaming. It's what yeah. I used to do on the netball court. And when uh, it's going well, it seems too easy. Uh, and when it's not going well, it's definitely too uh, difficult. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. Um, so how long have you been doing the teaching for? Is that, that well, quite a sort of long-standing um, thing as well? On and off. Well, like I said, I did, because, uh, uh, you know, if you write for kids, 
you do you do school visits and you, when I started doing school visits nobody knew who I was so I would do writing workshops with kids I wouldn't yes. necessarily read you know especially because I was working in London do you know what I mean my mum was a teacher in Tottenham don't talk for more than five minutes nobody's listening so I that's where I started doing writing workshops with kids and then that seeged into doing writing workshops with adults I can't remember did I do it I don't think I don't know formally I must have done it such a long time ago um and and then you worked uh, in the prisons which sounds yes amazing yeah. oh it's fascinating Holloway prison I learned so much um and uh Arvon uh which is great I have done I've done in university I've worked at, I worked at Kingston University I've worked at uh I did some at LCP, which is now LCC, which is part of UAL. Uh, I've worked at uh, um, the university in the Holloway Road. I can't remember what it's called because it's changed. North London used to be North London Poly. It's not anymore. So How I've do you done have a time lot. to write all these books and screenplays and listen. All the when you've, you've got done. kids, you can do pretty much. I mean, I don't have a very clean house, as my yeah. ex-husband will tell you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Just probably, you know. You do what uh, you have to do. You, you you just do it. So what would your couple of top tips for, for writers be? Those, those pre-Arvon people who are summoning up the courage to, to maybe go um, one day. You've got to, when you know you've got something, it's a bit like falling in love, okay? Because when you're in love, all you can do is think about that person and wanting, and, you know, you'll be imagining scenarios with that person and, you know, oh. but... When you've got a good story, you want to be with those people all the time in your head. Mm. And that's that's sort of how you know. And it can change. Don't think. It's exactly like daydreaming. Oh, no, that bit's not working. Oh, well, maybe they can do this other thing. You know, you, you fall in love with a situation or with a character or with a character and a situation. And if you cannot leave those people alone, that's a really good sign. And if you if you really hate them, leave them something else you know this is about you've got to entertain yourself first before you entertain anybody else so you know that, I do that's think that's just perfect <laughs> I, I'm, I'm gonna end there because I, yeah it's what I'm trying to do now it fits the book that I'm writing at the moment and I, I completely completely second all of that um we can't talk about growing up in London in the 1980s and how you were a cool art student and I was a convent schoolgirl wishing I was, <laughs> I was at St. Martin's. Damn it. Um, so, uh, yeah, you'll have to come back another time and we talk Don't about all worry. the other things. That would be really I, lovely. I was but... thinking, thinking oh, if, if this was being filmed, I could wear my, um, I've got an Aussie Clark vintage frock. I've got this great secondhand shops down here. Oh, it's fantastic. It's beautiful. Thank you ever so much anyway. And I'm now going to go and look at my tomato plants and I hope they haven't, you know, wilted away. Excellent. It's been a joy, <laughs> Catherine. Thank yes, you thank so you. much. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. I'd like to thank Christopher Pett for editing and producing this episode of Pre-Published. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. We'd love suggestions for future themes and guests too. You can also join us on Twitter at PrePubPodcast and find me at my website, which is sophiabennett.com.